0: Alright, welcome back students We're going to talk today about the sphere of Mercury The sphere 2 of Dante's Paradiso Last time we talked about the moon We talked about issues of oaths And oath breaking and consistency Met Piccardo Donati As well as Empress Constance Learned why the sphere of the moon has dark spots Which apparently is not Because of denser and rarer parts At least according to Beatrice But because of um, higher potencies Within the souls of those Within the sphere of heaven And so, and as an arrow which will strike the target before the string of the bow has come to rest, so we sped onwards to the second kingdom. Canto five, lines ninety-one to ninety-three, and just something very interesting is this seems to be an instance of what is called his histor or histeron proteron, the end before the beginning, and so. The, the plucking of the arrow comes after the hitting of the target though of course temporally speaking you pluck the bow before the target is reached. It's almost as if the end is in mind in the beginning here in the Paradiso. Alright, a couple of facts to note before we launch into the lecture proper. This is sphere two. This is Mercury. There's a theme here. The theme is ambition. Or those who sought worldly fame. So something that we recall from the moon is that the very first three spheres of heaven are perfect with small imperfections. Which may seem like a contradiction in terms. But remember the moon are those who are constant with a little bit of marring in terms of inconsistency. Those here in Mercury are those who sought to live the practical life. The good life. However, even though they wanted to achieve great things within the world, it was not simply because of noble aim, not simply to help the world or their particular state or religion, but sometimes for personal reasons, for personal glory, for personal pain. And so the problem with those within this sphere, if there were to be a problem, which they do happen to be in heaven, so they don't exactly have to act on it at this point, they did in purgatory, would be that they wanted something for themselves a little more than they wanted it for others. Not as charitable as they could have been, you might say. And so a couple concepts that we're going to talk about today. First, we're going to do a very broad overview of Roman history. I'm just going to give you some facts that you should know, some mythological facts about uh, say Turnus and Pallas and Aeneas, some historical facts about Octavian, Brutus Cassius, uh, uh, Mark Antony, Cleopatra and I'll even mention a Caesar whose name you probably don't know because there's not that much to know about him. We'll also talk about just vengeance versus just punishment. There is a disquisition within Mercury about how is it that you can be punished for something that it is that you've just, or how is it that you can be punished for taking vengeance on somebody in a fair way? So a big example of that, or I think the best example of that, of course, is Orestes from the Greek tradition. He executes his mother because she had illegally murdered his father who was king. And so he kills her in order to execute the murderer of the king and also to retake his proper place in the world. And yet, the Furies, which are an embodiment of the insanity or the emotional dysregulation that one feels after harming a family member, are so... are thrown onto Orestes. In fact, there's a trial, if you ever read the Orestia in the third, in the third book called the Eumenides, the which is a word for the Furies, the kindly ones, is what is what that means. Uh, kind indeed. And so we will talk about how it can be the case that you can punish somebody fairly and still, well, receive punishment yourself. And so there is also, of course, the major idea of original sin. And the death of Christ—that uh, is something that Dante is going to jump into. He's going to talk about how is it that man first sort of lost his pride of place? How is it that he got it back? Because that will be his idea—that like in a good game, if there's game over, you need to start over, or there's no game because there's no you, so there's no one to play. And so, people that you will need to know from this. Sphere, our Emperor Justinian, a 6th century Byzantine slash Roman Emperor. He'll talk the entire Canto 6, and a good bit of 7 as well. Um, and Romeo or Romu de Nueva, And it, he'll sometimes be called Romeo, not the same Romeo as Romeo and Juliet. That Romeo comes like 200 years later. Alright, just write the A, B, and C here. So, in Canto 6 which follows in the sphere of Mercury. It is unique in that it features a single speaker. It's very similar to in the Inferno when Ulysses speaks to us in the 26th canto. The sixth century emperor of Rome, Justinian, given a sort of mythological history of the Roman Empire leading up to Dante's times, which are so afflicted with issues between the Ghibellines, which represented, like Justinian, which are represented like Justinian by an eagle banner. And in fact, he will use the Roman imperial eagle, that was their symbol, just as that is the symbol of the United States, as the symbol for Roman conquest over time, which is very interesting because you might say, Mr. Schmidt, did the Romans get the idea of an eagle as king and their symbol from the eagle of Jupiter and the eagle of Zeus? And I would say, I cannot 100% confirm that, but I would say almost guaranteed. The eagle is the lion of the sky, is the king of the sky. And in fact, that is often why, or at least that is why in the Purgatorio, an eagle plus a lion equals the super king, which is the image of Jesus in the Purgatorio. And so, Sphere of Mercury, we have fame seekers, people who wanted to make a big impact in the world, people who wanted to scar the world like Ulysses. We have Justinian, a sixth century Roman emperor. By some accounts, he was the final Roman emperor. And in fact, he, uh, he was a Byzantine emperor, uh, which shows the distinction between the Western and the Eastern uh, Roman kingdoms. And he discourses, discourses on the path of Roman domination. All right, cool. So let's talk about it. He begins in Book 6. He starts talking about Constantine's conversion of the Roman capital from Rome to Byzantium. He said this was the beginning of essentially the end. He says, I was Caesar. And Am Justinian. He says I was Caesar, because that is the word for king or emperor at that time. In fact, the Germans picked that up later on, and in fact, and they called their kings Kaisers, which is the exact same pronunciation as Caesar, or as how Caesar would be pronounced in Roman Kaiser. He was Justinian the Great, and he ruled. Note that R there, not in, not an about sign or an at sign, a circa sign, um, nor is that a born sign. 527 to 565. So he had about a 40 year rule, 38 years, very long. And he wrote a very popular book, or a very famous book called called The Corpus Juris Civilis, or Civilis. The Body of Civil Law. And so it's like his first super lawyer. All right, and so some things that we need to know about Roman history. We recall last year that the antecedent to the Romans were the Trojans, at least mythologically speaking. And that the Romans, through Virgil, in his work the Aeneid, claimed to be descended from a very specific Trojan. And which Trojan was that? Well, that was Aeneas. We recall that Aeneas had to spend seven long years looking for a new home, tried to find a couple new homes. in, In fact, Thrace, he went to, uh Booth Rotum, he went to, I think it was in Thrace that he built a city called Aeneidae. And there was even one other location where he attempted to settle Crete, yes, but there was still a plague sitting sitting there because of the, the misdeeds of Idominius, the poor oath that Idominius made. Inominius from our first lecture. And so we recall that Aeneas first defeated the Latins and the Rutulians in in Latium. Then founded a city called Lavinium after his wife, Lavinia, his his now European wife. Recall that he had an Asian wife, Creusa, an African wife, Dido, and a European wife. So he has sort of a path of an eagle, just like the Romans. He made some ground, scarred the world, as it were, was a great explorer, made his mark. And then the capital of the then Trojan Latin people was moved to Alba Longa. Which was where Ascanius ruled for, I believe, around 30 years. All right, the next major moment he brings up is a very famous moment in mythology, and I can only say that I think it was the second ever ruler of Rome. Uh, I think it was Numa, but I'll have Numa Pompilius. But I'll have to look this up. The mythological story goes like this: that when Rome was first founded, it only had men, and so. If you want to have a civilization, though, what do you definitely need in order to survive longer than 10, 20, 30, 50 years? Yes. Women. You need women. And so what did the Romans do? Well, they supposedly had these um, they had these neighbors called the Sabines or the Sabines. And so what they did is they went over and, like Odysseus with um, the Cicones, sacked them and took their women. Though by some historical Mythological accounts: the claim is made that none were physically abused during this, because the Romans, being upright, disciplined people, they just wanted wives. This was the way that they went about doing it. Uh, Many of the instances of mythological Rome involve acts of sort of weird violence, right? Like the Romulus and Remus, their putative or their titular founders, Romulus at least, um, being suckled on a she-wolf, a very violent creature, and the idea that. The way that they even acquired their women was by force. It's a very Viking-like idea. In any case, he also mentions Hannibal being defeated by Scipio. Scipio, who will eventually be called Scipio Africanus, precisely because he defeated an African ruler, the African general Hannibal from Carthage. Recall also that Carthage and Rome hated each other, at least according to the Aeneid, because of the, who were who those two lovers so similar to Romeo and Juliet? One from Carthage, technically from Tyre, one from Troy, who in book four of the Aeneid found themselves in a cave and became husband and wife, and because of the devolving of their relationship, created the enmity that would last between Carthage and Rome forever. Yes. Dido and Aeneas. Very good. And this is the outcome of this, the Second Punic War, where Hannibal crosses the Alps with his elephants and attempts to destroy the Romans, turned back by Scipio and Pompey. That will be the same Pompey, unless I'm mistaken, that is later defeated in civil war by Julius Caesar. So, many good things, many good things. Alright, we have also listed here the crossing of the Rubicon by Caesar. In Roman history this is a big deal. No army had ever crossed the river around Rome until it was Rome's own son, favored son, Caesar, who crossed it. And so it was a Roman who conquered Rome. And so Rome conquered itself through him, interestingly enough. And it is after that event that Rome fell from being a republic to becoming an empire, which is also the story of the first three movies of Star Wars, the first three ones that temporally were shown, not in order, of course. All right, and let's see. We have also the betrayal of Caesar by Brutus and Cassius. We know that well. The death of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and then of course the spread of the empire during the time of the Pax Romana, which was 27 BCE to CE 180 by Octavian Caesar. That's 207 years of peace. That is an extraordinary amount of time of peace. That's almost seven generations. If you take 30 years to be a generation count, which is generally, generally uh, what people do. So your grandfather's grandfather's grandfather would not have even seen war. I wonder if people even believe that it existed during that time. There were skirmishes. All right. In any case, the last little bit here, you don't even need to write this, is that we see the third Caesar. His name is Tiberius. You might want to know that if you like extra credit. There's a short history of the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. Charles the First and Second of Anjou. Um, apparently Charles should be careful is what Justinian says because these Guelphs as well as they look like they're doing and it looks like a misspelled lilies up there to me else uh, they will be attacked and uh, defeated by the Ghibellines at another point even though they had been until that point in Florence expelled for some time alright let's talk about Mercury just a little bit minus an E this little star is studded With good spirits who exerted themselves in order to acquire honor and reputation. Okay. And they take pleasure in the fact that they have gotten what they deserve here. Because this is the sphere of just reward for just punishment. Ah. We're starting to understand something about why this sphere is called Mercury. we called it Mercury is the Roman name for the Greek god Hermes. Hermes is the god of transactions, of communication, of something going from one place to another. travel transaction, trade, tra, 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 Some, all things that require trust, hmm, interesting. Very good, and so this seems to be the sphere where we will determine what the proper relationship between goods are, or between actions and effects. If I do this, what do I get for it? And that is something that's very important to us. Of course, we in a capitalist economy in 21st century America very much care about what we get for what we do because a we can see the future and b we value our time, and so we also receive here an account for the reason and the The reason for the differences in souls, and I think this is interesting because this is a, an account not only for why humans are different within a society, but also why there are apparently differing spheres in heaven. Because the idea is different voices. This is six one twenty four to one twenty six make notes sound sweet and so different stations in our life make a sweet harmony amongst these spheres the idea is that heaven is like a garden or even better because this moves through time a melody think about a song a song is is it one or is it many on the one hand you say it's one harmony but on the other hand you say it's made up of many different notes of many different lengths of many different pitches and tones and so I might ask the same question, not only about a song, but about a society. And the second question I would ask about the song is, is the diversity of the notes within it something that makes the song boring or interesting? Interesting, if it were all the same note, that's just a sound, right? That's nothing. It's boring within two seconds, but an interesting, pattern song with new things that happen throughout time and then recursions back to old things and then slight changes in the pattern which let you see both the past and the present and the future because you can see now where the song is going based on where it's been based on the changes you see now well I wonder if this is supposed to be how we're supposed to see reality and also how we're supposed to see the people around us just as the notes in a song each one well here's the question Is any note in a song irrelevant to the song? The answer is of course, no. You notice when somebody misses a note when they're playing a piece of instrument. You hear it, there's an absence. Well a song, that's a small, relatively unimportant thing even if it's a famous song. What about a society then? Would there be any part too small or so small that it were unimportant or inessential to the whole? The idea seems to be, no, it matters not how small your part is. The part is just as, your part part is equally essential to the whole. And I think that's beautiful. All right, and also note that we'll be talking about the concept of the contemplative life versus the active life. Of course, the souls here uh, pursued the active life. That means exactly what you might expect it to be. Somebody who wants to make a mark in the world. Our contemporary idea would be someone who goes into business or to sales. That's an active life. Was a contemplative life, more somebody who wants to be a university professor or, or, or a librarian. Somebody who likes the quiet life of thinking. Hmm. All right. Only need A and B here. And so, because they so longed for earthly honor, prestige, and glory, these souls fulfilled their active lives. But did not focus on developing their contemplative lives, which would have led them towards the object of all thought. God. Since God's justice, that is apparently going to be a big concept in this canto, these two cantos, is infallible and perfect, therefore, the place where these souls rest is the perfect place for them. As there are different wonderful smells and sights in the garden or different notes in the symphony, so are these souls, still called shades, perfectly content with their allotted place in the universe. And that was a point that I, I started and didn't make earlier. Recall that... The first three spheres are marred by some sort of, small, not sin so much as um, imperfection. Perhaps those are the same things. And not only will the moon be inconstant, Mercury uh, tend towards fame-seeking and ambition, but Venus will be love that is a little bit curdled and spoiled by, what you would expect, lust. All right, good. So, next person that we need to talk about. Justinian mentions a great just man. And so what we're going to get here is evidence that in the world, people don't get what they deserve. And I'm going to contrast this with another person who makes that claim, but is perhaps wrong in making that claim when he applies that reasoning to himself. Pierre de la Vigne from book 13, or excuse me, Canto 13 of the Inferno. Recall he said that he, he was unjust against his just self. So Justinian also mentions the great just, fair man, Romeo. Romeo de Villeneuve, or Villeneuve in French, Villeneuve. Not the one from the Shakespeare play, like I said. And his poor treatment amongst his peers based on false stories. And so, poor treatment amongst his peers based on false stories. Well, here's, here's the thing. Tell me if this doesn't sound like Pierre de La Vigne to you. Just as Pierre de La Vigne claims that he had the ear of the man who was august and who was Caesar. At his time. And the slanderous words of those who were envious of him led to him losing his rank. And because he lost his rank, he lost his sense of self. And because of that, he cut himself down and became forever a tree in the suicide forest. Well, Romeo here is pretty similar. There was this Count of Provence named Raymond Berenger. And he had four daughters. Apparently, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. To get a count's daughters married to decent men. That said, that is exactly what Romeo did for this man. Not an unimportant thing to have done. Unfortunately, he was conspired against by those who were jealous of him. Those who were jealous of him then got into the ear like worm tongue from the Lord of the Rings and convinced Raymond Beringer to dismiss this Romeo. And it's not like, it was not at that time like it is in contemporary American capitalism where you lose your job, you go through two or three months of depression while having a severance package, maybe be on unemployment, which is actually a thing in this country, which is incredible, and then get another job. No, he had two options, die or live on in poverty. And so what did he choose? Well, if I just open up here to the end, of old book six I see here. Let's see, starting in line 133. Raymond Beringer had four daughters, all were queens. It was Romeo who made them so. Excellent, parent. And he himself was a humble man and a stranger, so apparently he made queens of people without asking for very much. And then ugly talk, that's India's talk, induced the count to require this just man to account for his actions. Very interesting there. Who calls Romeo just? Does he call himself just? Or is he called just by another? Called just by another. Called just by another. Who was it that called Pierre just? Let me read to you what he says from Inferno 13 very quickly. Uh huh. If I can find it very quickly. I had the double keys to Frederick's heart. Yes. Ah, yes. Lines 70-72 to 72, My mind with its taste for scorn and anger Thinking my death to escape the scorn of others Made me unjust against my just self Here's a big question Pierre is in hell He says he was just And he was unjust against his just self Romeo is in heaven Somebody else says that he was just Who is it that has to determine for you <laughs> Whose judgment are you more willing to accept Justinian's judgment of Romeo's quality based on where Romeo is in heaven? Or Pierre's self-judgment of his own personal justice and where he happens to be in hell? Who is it that you think is more being more honest and accurate in their assessment? Mm. Justinian, of course. His name is Justinian. His name means justice embodied, body, which is incredible, which is incredible, which almost is like, If you want to see the worth of someone's words, what should you look at? The what's of their actions. What are the things that come after actions, which is why we do everything? There are causes and there are also effects, the effects of their actions. See what it is, see where it is that these guys got if you want to see whether you should trust their words or not. where did Pierre end up? Killing himself and in hell, not a great place to be. Where did Romeo end up? In heaven? What did both of them endure? Terrible scandal. Who dealt with it better? And that's a question for you to answer. He went from there, or excuse me, and then ugly talk induced the count to require this just man to account for his actions. This is important because you might not have noticed this because this is hard to understand unless you read it slowly. And he gave seven and five for every 10. Seven and five is a math equation. It means seven plus five. What does that equal? He gave 12 for 10. Does that mean that he gave more than he was asked to or less than he was asked to? More. That's like us saying that we gave what percent? 110%. Yes, it is actually pretty close to that. 6 over 5, 12 over 10. It's actually 120% that he gives, apparently. And so, was he justly accused of not having Raymond Beringer's interests in mind? No. He was persecuted unjustly. And he went from there in poverty and old age. And if the world knew the heart he had, begging his livelihood across at a time, much as it praises him, it would praise him more. What he did is he accepted his faith. These people led him to poverty, and well, because he knew that it was that he had done the right thing, and that those who conspired against him did so maliciously and with evil intent, he was totally okay. Accepting poverty rather than their their company. Which suggests to me that there might be something more important in this world even than worldly success. Even though that's a very difficult thing to conceptualize. And I do recommend that you pursue success. Alright. Good. Good, 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 good. Looks like I already wrote all this up to you. Wish I'd had this up for you at that time. Good. In any case, let's move on to Canto 7. So... We just had an instance of a man who acted in a just way but received an unjust punishment. Now earlier I told you that I was going to talk about Dante through the voice of Beatrice's conception of original sin and the incarnation of Jesus, the word of God so called. And so you already see the line that leads to that argument because just as Romeo is a man who acted justly on the world, but received unjust punishments or unjust rewards or fruits for that, so is Jesus a figure of a human slash God who came to the world and did good, just things, and then received very unjust deserts from humans. And so that is going to be our next big question because a parent, after Beatrice, reads the pilgrim's mind, because she is his mind illuminated by truth, and begins a discourse On how one could take just vengeance, but still receive a just punishment in response to this. Canto 7, lines 19 to 21. Alright, just like when Orestes fairly executed his mother for killing his father. Hmm. Alright. I don't need you to write this, I'm just going to read this to you very quickly. In Canto 7, within the sphere of Mercury, God of messages between the human and the celestial realm, God of communication and transmission... Thus were those who sought worldly fame and the act of life at the expense of the contemplative life. We encounter a question which has to do with a mercantile understanding of the relationship of just actions. Just for y'all to know a couple things, the word merchandise and the word merchandiser and the word mercantile, all of those words come from mercury and they're all related back to mercury. So whenever you see that merch sort of word, you can think that it's a bit hermetic. Well we encounter a question of how do you correctly compensate people for what it is they've done? The most original compensation system we know from Hammurabi. An eye for a what? An eye. Or currency for an object or two objects of equal value being exchanged is the image we receive. A necessity for balance, or Libra, is what's conveyed by the actions in this sphere. Remember earlier that oaths were considered, and the agreement necessary between the participants The theme that governs this sphere is therefore balance between two parties, a judge and a judge, a seller and a person and a buyer. And so have you ever questioned why we do not dispense justice as an eye for an eye or how we can trade unlike goods? It's very weird. Why trade works? Have you ever thought about that? How we use these weird like pieces of paper that have like kind of some numbers on them and lots of germs and then somebody gives you a state or they give you a Porsche or they give you a computer, or they give you a service every month. Why is it that when you give somebody something that looks nothing like what they give you, they will still give you that thing that they offer you? They will fix your car when you give them seven not crisp uh, dollar bills that say some, you know, probably $20 on them or something like that. Why is it, how is it that exchange actually works? So, well, this goes down, I'm just gonna skip C and D here. To Eve, this question, why did God become man? Because that seems like an instance of a relationship between two parties where an injustice occurs. Because if I, just broadly speaking, know the story, there was a first man named Adam. And that first man was tempted by knowledge. Some say carnal knowledge. And he learned from it. And because he learned from it, he fell. He fell came to be in a deprived or a fallen state, a state in which he could not know something that he had once known. A, a fall from grace is sometimes what people call it, or a fall from innocence, or a fall from naivete, like children becoming adults, leaving Eden, or the kindergarten, as we call it. And then there was another man, a second Adam, they say, named Jesus, who was the Son of God, and was God, oddly enough, who was a man and a God, came down to the world, did good things, was crucified for it. And the idea behind that was not that humans had forever despoiled themselves, but that through his act of sacrifice, humans were then redeemed. That is very bizarre reasoning. How is it the case that a man coming down (laughs) and then being killed by humans would redeem humans rather than further damning them forever? The idea seems to be the reason he came down was to die for humans. And let's understand what that reasoning is. Ah, yes, and I have here a picture and a quote from St. Athanasius. God became man in order that men then become God. Very odd, very interesting, very interesting. So let's lay out the reasoning. I'm going to have to go as quickly as I have to go here because this is difficult thinking. Dante first describes Jesus as God descended to earth as man. He then claims that God as man must be the most just creature on earth because the idea of a God is perfect. And so if a God becomes a man, it would be a what sort of man? A perfect man. If it's a perfect man, is it the fairest possible man? Of course. So this is the fairest possible man. That's the idea. Well, if you can't kill the fairest possible man, have you done the unfairest possible thing? Because if they're perfectly fair, what do they deserve? Reward or, de- or punishment? Reward. reward. And so what is the reward we give to the fairest man? Death. Crucifixion. That's quite right. And then, so again, my question. How then does this remove sin from man rather than forever blacken his soul? Good question. Well, if Jesus is the most just man on earth, and this is a syllogism and just, justice involves and this is the minor this is the major and the minor premise here the major is Jesus is the most ja- just man on earth. The minor premise justice involves giving each his due therefore Jesus deserves the greatest reward which can be given Very good we laid that out and he was killed completely unjustly. Well what does that mean? That means he was given the worst reward possible rather than the best one uh, for the most charitable act. Possible, which is dying for other people. So, hmm. Beatrice says, this act by man of killing the most just possible creature that could exist is unforgivable by man. So it seems to be the case that man could not forgive himself for doing this because the being who he kills was so fair. That there is nothing he could ever do to make up for such an unforgivable crime himself. Okay, that's powerful reasoning. But that's not where we're ending. Since God is the greatest being in creation, and therefore does not need or desire any charity or gift from man, ah, I see. If charity is the greatest thing that can be offered or loved, then it has to be offered, not simply received to be the greatest possible act. I see part of the reasoning here. Part of the reasoning why, at least for Dante, through the mouth of, mouth of Beatrice, God must have descended to the earth is so that the greatest possible being could give the greatest possible gift to the greatest possible creation. Which would be what creatures? What are the only creatures ever that could ex- that could actually appreciate charity being given to them? Mm-hmm. Humans. We're the only ones with minds. So part of the reason seems to be since humans killed the God Man, that create that created a situation in which only one creature or person could ever forgive man and that would be the God itself which was killed but when the God itself or Jesus is killed by man and man is in an unforgivable state that makes it possible for the God to do the most supreme act of kindness ever which is to forgive an unforgivable act In order to show the tremendous value of the creature which is forgiven Because if the greatest creature ever is killed by humans And then forgives humans That is the greatest act of charity ever done for any possible species Which would mean what for the value of humans That we're so special That we're worthy of the forgiveness of God even after killing him How special does that make you as a creature? Is there any creature that can be more special than that? No. In fact, even mythologically speaking, which creature, greatest creature ever created, is not that special? Because he lives down in a hole in hell forever, according to Dante. Hmm. Satan. And so according to Dante's reasoning, which creature is even greater than the highest angel because if because this creature will actually be forgiven is forgiven humans that is a powerful argument i think i think a very powerful argument all right and just i'll just finish the argument here and so in order for god to even give charity man had to commit the ultimate sin or choose against god so that his uh so that god could forgive him for turning his back on god without a mistake no forgiveness, no great act of charity, no showing the tremendous value of man. And this makes sense. Because if God repaid an injury for an injury, God would have been injured by man. But it but as God and man share an eternal nature, it cannot, by definition, be affected or changed. God can't be injured by man. If because God as a concept is perfect, that which is perfect cannot change. That which it cannot change, cannot suffer corruption or pain or imperfection. So God, therefore, could not suffer an injury from man, but as the ultimate force in the universe, conceptually, he could forgive man for what appeared to be the ultimate crime because there was no injury. There was no crime. So man, in acting against God, simply acts against himself. And so it is actually, by Dante's reasoning, in your best interest... To act according to the Logos, or that which is called God. Alright, we have a lot more to talk about soon.